Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin and it's another episode of Just Caitlin. Samantha's on holiday, um, having a great time probably and is hopefully listening to this. Um, So we were actually not going to do an episode this week until I checked the date. And this weekend is actually the three year anniversary of The Crime Pod starting. We started on the 7th of May 2020, which feels like ages ago. I feel like we've been doing this for more than three years and it was a lockdown project which I think all of us had lockdown projects and if you told Caitlin Samantha three years ago that we were now going to have thousands of people listening to this we would never have believed you so thank you for sticking with us for the last three years and thank you for getting involved at any point over that we generally really really appreciate it. Anyway carrying on so this week I am going to tell you and it's just you and me the story of Joe Geeling. actually heard of this story for years ago I feel I first heard of it which is a surprise and I'm just gonna answer my own question because there's no Sam to ask um yeah I feel like I'd heard it ages ago but if you'd asked me to describe it to you I probably would have described it a bit differently so I actually learned a lot of information when studying this case so that was really helpful so the story is set in Bury, which is in England it's like a small market town it's spelt Bury but it's pronounced Berry, I believe. And it's in um, the borough of Berry, which is in Greater Manchester in England. So in 2015, it had an estimated population of roughly 78,000. But our story is going to take place in 2006. So I'm not 100% sure what the population was then. But this is how much it had in 2015. So it's the closest I could get. It's a pretty small kind of market town and it's just beside the River Irwell. Um... So, as I said, our story is about Joe Geeling. So, Joe was an 11-year-old first-year boy, which I think is year seven in England, but that is first year in Scotland, and I'm not going to try and guess the rest of the world. Um, He was small, he had brown hair, blue eyes, and when I say small, I mean he was like four foot seven, which I don't know if that is small for an 11-year-old. I'm actually not quite sure, but he is described as small, so I'm assuming he was quite small-built as well. He was very smiley and popular with other students and teachers in his school. He was close with his parents, Gwen and Tom, and he had four siblings, which were James, Kelly, Daniel and Sean. Now, I don't think he was the youngest. I've got a feeling he was like the second youngest, maybe, but I could be totally wrong, so don't quote me on that. Now, he attended a local school, St. Gabriel's, Gabriel's sorry, Roman Catholic School, and his family were practicing Catholics. Now, Joe also had a diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. Now, I'm going to give you the actual Google Wikipedia definition of cystic fibrosis. So, cystic fibrosis is an inherited condition in which the lungs and digestive systems can become clogged with thick, sticky mucus. It can cause problems with breathing and digestion from a young age, over many years, the lungs become increasingly damaged and may eventually stop working properly. So Joe throughout his life would attend regular hospital appointments. I think he's had it from when he was weeks, if not months old. So he's aware of it, he's used to it and he attends his hospital pro- um, appointments with no problems whatsoever. He has a complete understanding of why he goes. So as I said, our story is set in 2006, but we're going back to March the 1st. Now this was a normal day. Joe went to school and he went to registration um, he met his friends they all went to class like 
there was a false fire alarm that day, which if that school was anything like mine, that is a big day. False fire alarm day is a good day. Um, and that was it. He left school alone. He lived a roughly a 15 minute walk away and he normally walked home with his friend, but his friend was off ill from school that day. So he didn't walk home with his friend. Now he didn't return home by 4.30, which was the usual time Joe would normally make it home from school, but he didn't also arrive by 5.30. And that is when Glenn called the police as he's never normally home late that late. And he actually had to go into hospital for an appointment or treatment for his cystic fibrosis at five. So she knew he'd been back by then. So the fact he's missed his appointment when, as I've said to you, like he was aware of his cystic fibrosis and he was aware of how serious it was, he wouldn't just miss his appointments. So his parents' first thought was, of course, linked to the cystic fibrosis and they were worried that he'd maybe taken ill on the way home and maybe something had happened. Now, the police search starts pretty much immediately and the police, mountain rescue, fire brigades and volunteers all go out looking for Joe as he is a vulnerable child. Like, he is 11 years old and he's got a medical condition. So that is pretty much a red alert for a missing child. Now, he was last seen wearing his blue blazer, black Timberland boots and a blue shirt, which was the standard school uniform. Now, he was last seen on Manchester Road walking towards the direction of his home. Now, he would have passed loads of residential areas and a park, etc. And these were all searched, but nothing came up in the search for Joe. Now, being a runaway is, of course, something you have to look at whenever there's a missing child case. Like, have they decided to leave home for any reason? But this is ruled out, like, very quick. Like, he was content at home. He had absolutely no reason to run away, but also he was aware of his medical condition that if he was to run away, he would still have to go to the hospital and doctors for treatment. Now that night, he unfortunately didn't return home and it actually dropped to minus six degrees due to it being in March. So winter in Scotland, rubbish as it is, but especially that kind of February, March time is when we mainly get snow and it becomes really, really cold. So it dropped to minus six. So of course, this is increasing the worry of everybody is if he'd fallen somewhere, if he'd got stuck somewhere, if he was outside it's now minus six, so he's going to be very unwell if he stays out. They searched frozen rivers, dog went out and searched gardens and woodland. However, there was no sign of Joe. Now, the 2nd of March, the following day, is when the news crews start appearing at the Geelings' home. Now, reports start spreading all over kind of Greater Manchester, and this becomes a bigger known case of the missing boy. When they spoke to his friends, they said he never said anything to them and told them he was basically going straight home from school. So there has been no plans that have been heard of. He was meant to be going basically straight home. However, a new lead comes forward and I can't really source where this lead came from, saying that he was last seen on Amesworth Road. Now this heads east and basically the house has turned into a park with a play area, fields, woods and a small river. So of course that is the, I, I don't know actually, I could be wrong, but I think that's a different direction from when he was going home. So the police haven't searched this before. So this area becomes searched and the team go and search this area and a police dog finds a body at 11am. Now the body was concealed under leaves and objects. It was obviously hidden deliberately. Now, this is all kind of sealed off and, of course, an investigation begins and forensics, etc. come in. Joe's father, Tom, arrives at the park basically asking if it was his son and he's seen being led away by officers as forensics continue searching. By afternoon that day, an arrest had been reportedly made in connection to the body that was found. And it's not been confirmed it's Joe yet, but, of course, the town are already shocked that Joe's gone missing but they're even more shocked when the arrest is of a 14-year-old. Now, they were held in custody and were being questioned by police, and the house of this person was searched, and an alleyway next to the house all had forensics teams in. 
Now, at about noon this day, snow begins to fall, basically covering the part and the site where the body was found. So police are trying to now continue gathering forensic evidence, but it's also snowing, which is obviously contaminating this scene. The police hadn't confirmed if it was Joe's body that had been found. However, the locals begin assuming and begin laying out flowers and notes, etc. Now, I can imagine it's maybe because if that's quite a small area, like if he lived 15 minutes kind of walk from the school, I can imagine this is all a kind of small residentially kind of... Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, even if you grow up in a big city of a population of 70, like your close neighbours, etc., if someone goes missing amongst them and the next minute a body's found in the area, I think they could probably put two and two together. Now, Joe's parents, Gwen and Tom, and siblings were all visited by the priests from their local church. And on Saturday the 4th of March, the body is confirmed to be 11-year-old Joe Geeling. So St Gabriel head teacher, who's Eddie Robertson, made a statement about the seven year, year seven boy, sorry, calling him lovely and well-mannered. The day the post-mortem is carried out is actually the 4th of um, March as well. And he's carried out obviously to formally ID, but it confirms that he was murdered. Now the injuries he sustained were awful, so I apologise. I actually forgot to give a warning at the start, but this is obviously a crime against a child as he was 11 years old. So this is where it's going to start getting a bit graphic. So if you want to skip that, that's okay. So he had a fractured left eye socket. He had been stabbed 16 times by two different knives around the head, neck, face and upper body. One stab wound was actually eight centimetres deep. So if you like see a ruler, eight centimetres, that has taken a lot of force to go into somebody. One had stabbed his lungs in two different places and he was stabbed three times on the back of his neck. He also had a stab wound on his bum, like his buttock, and that had been, I don't know how they'd done it, but they'd worked out that that had actually been, he'd been stabbed on his bum after he'd already died. So, I can't even remember the word, like post, I can't remember the word, sorry, but he had basically, that had happened, that had been inflicted on him when he was already dead. Now, rumours begin circling around the town and questions are arising, which as you can imagine, like, why was he going the other way? Why was he found where he was found? Was he was he go in the woods? Who's this 14-year-old? Which, of course, that is the main question. Who is this 14-year-old that's been arrested and charged with, like, well, arrested and looked at for this murder? Sorry, I've just ruined my next bit for you. So on the 9pm on the 4th, the 14-year-old is officially charged with Joe's murder. Now, on the 31st of March, nearly a month later, it was the funeral and hundreds of people went. People lined the streets and Tom's dad quoted, there is such a hole in our lives, which I cannot imagine what his family is going through. They've probably had a really, really tough time with Joe, with his health conditions and everything. And he's probably kind of their medical child almost. And to be taken away like this, I can't imagine how they must have felt. Now, his parents actually asked for donations to be made to the Cystic Fibrosis Trust instead of flowers, etc. Now, police confirmed they were not looking into anyone else regarding the murder. And on the 10th of April, the 14-year-old appeared at Bury Magistrates Court. Now, due to the age of them, their ID was hidden from the public. So, if Samantha was here, this is when I would ask her what her thoughts are on this. But I think it's quite a, it's quite a tough subject because I do believe due to them being a child... They should have their ID hidden from the press, etc. However, they have committed an adult crime. They've committed murder. So I feel like that is when it really kind of sways. Now, the reason it's hidden from the public is actually because it's Section 49 of the Children and Young Persons Act of 1933. 
and it basically says that reports of cases heard in youth courts cannot include the name, address, school or any other information relating to the identity of the defendant. So the reason I quoted this is because it mentions, for example, school. So we actually can't rule out just now if he went to school with Joe or if this was a complete random attack or had this been plotted, did Joe know him? We don't know at all. Um, so it's actually also illegal to publish information which breaches section 49. However, of course, there's an exemption to most rules. So the court can impose an order under section 45 of the Youth Justice and Criminal Evidence Act of 1999, preventing the media and anyone else from naming the defendant. So they can put that, um, but this can be overturned. So this can be taken away. So the media, etc. aren't allowed to name them, but the courts can eventually then name them if they believe it's a fair enough crime. I hope that all makes sense. If you're getting confused, etc. All I'm saying is there's these two things, these two acts, 1933 and 1999. However, depending the crime, it can be overruled. And in this case, it was. So the 14-year-old is named as Michael Hamer. Now, Michael was born in 1991. His dad was in the police and actually left his mum, Julie, just before Michael was born and didn't have anything to do with Michael. Um, he attended the same school as Joe, but he was a couple of years above. He was nothing like Joe. Michael was lonely, he got bullied a lot and he didn't do well academically. He had behavioural and learning difficulties, but his family were known to be middle class and pretty normal. His mum was a single parent after his dad had left and I think the whole not having a dad hit Michael pretty hard. I think his dad had made it clear as well he didn't really want anything to do with Michael, which I can imagine is very difficult. So Julie, as I said, was a single parent. So she worked till 6.30pm quite a lot. That's the shift she worked. So Michael was quite isolated at school and then would spend time alone at home. He pretended to be a teacher when he was at home and actually would make registers and class plans, etc. for people that were at his school. So it's not like he would just make up names, etc. He would do them as if he was a teacher at his school. In 2004, Julie actually contacted social services for help with Michael. She said that he was struggling and he actually had sessions with social work and he said that he felt lonely he said he wanted to get to know his dad he told the social worker he was being bullied and good enough to the school actually the school dealt with this and expelled the people that were bullying Michael but Michael told all this to the social worker and had said this is how he's feeling and the same with his mum and his mum openly said she was struggling with his behaviours Michael tried to form friendships with younger people, mainly younger boys. Um, this was a bit of a control thing. I don't know if it was maybe, like at first I was like, oh, maybe it's because he was at a kind of mental age with that. But I don't know as well if it comes from the whole pretending to be a teacher, pretending to be someone of authority in that situation that he's making friends with younger people to then have a bit of control. In 2006, Julie noticed Michael had began eating less. He began damaging walls by stabbing them with a knife in her house. So again this is obviously not great so we know that Julie has kind of raised this so as the trial is kind of progressing at this point they kind of come up with a rough plot of what happened because I think obviously that's probably what a lot of us are kind of questioning right now is like I've just told you all the spiel on Michael but like why like how how did this kind of happen do you know what I mean and I actually can't remember if I've told you or not. I feel like I've maybe missed this one. But Michael entered a guilty plea and the trial was set in October 2006. So I'm going to give you a rough kind of timeline of what happened. Um, and this is what they kind of pitched together. 
So about three to four weeks prior to the murder, Michael began planning and then the plot started on Wednesday, March the 1st, 2006. So Michael went to school on time and Joe was dropped off that day by his mum as he'd spent the night in hospital due to treatment for his cystic fibrosis, which we all know. During lunch that day, Michael went up to Joe and gave him a note that was basically meant to be from the deputy head teacher, Linda Foley. Now, the note said that Joe was to go to Michael's house after school to collect books and they were going to start a mentoring programme where Michael was going to mentor Joe. Now, drafts of this letter, so numerous letter drafts, were found in Michael's home. So Linda did not, the deputy head teacher Linda, did not write this note. This was written by Michael. Now, at this point, obviously, Joe does not think this. Joe thinks it was written by the kind of deputy head. But I'm not knowing why Michael did this to lure him back to his house. I don't know if it's coming back to the controlled thing of being a teacher, etc. And maybe this is where this bloody system is coming from. At 1.15pm... Joe is in history and the teacher basically asked Joe about why him and his friends are whispering and talking during the lesson and Joe mentions a note and he's quite hesitant to give it to the teacher but eventually does and she thinks this is really concerning. He's told to basically take it right to the deputy head teacher at break and to go straight home after school, not to go to Michael's house. Now at roughly half past two, Joe is seen outside the deputy head's office but he never goes in. Now police believe that Michael actually saw him outside the deputy head teacher and kind of saw him and was like right come on like let's just go because shortly after this joe and michael are seen in the corridor together by a teacher who um like have seen the notes of the history teachers obviously passed this on and joe says that he visited the deputy head and it appears to be fine like it's all good um but this kind of conversation starts to develop a bit more and this is when the false alarm the fire alarm goes off at 10 to 4, school finishes and Joe leaves with his friends and he walks to uh, Monkey Bridge over the railway line and then heads back saying he's going to the shop. So he's gone the same route that he goes. He goes over Monkey Bridge to get home and then he basically turns back saying he's going to the shop. At 10 past 4, Joe is seen walking a few paces behind Michael near his house. So he's obviously then gone to the shop but he's not told his friends his plan to go with Michael. Now... Uh, about quarter past four they arrive back home with joe and um michael takes joe into his bedroom michael then hits um joe repeatedly over the head with a frying pan and stabs him 16 times with kitchen knives and the handle of the pan snaps as he's hit hit him so hard so i am going to come back to this like part because obviously you're probably wondering why did he just start hitting him well i will get back to you on that now at about half past four, a neighbor, a neighbor, sorry, sees Michael pushing a wheelie bin, which, unbeknown at the time, contained Joe's body, towards Whitehead Park. And at about quarter two, Michael supposedly dumps Joe's body in a gully in the park and hides it with leaves, dirt, twigs, and actually finds sofa cushions to put on top of him as well. At ten two, Michael is basically seen talking on his mobile phone while pulling the bin back across the park. Now, he's actually talking to his mum because his mum was at work and had phoned the house phone. Michael hadn't answered, so she then phoned again, being like, why is the house phone not ringing? He said, oh, it didn't ring, and that's why it called on the mobile. At about quarter past five, Michael has returned home and has begun cleaning the blood from his bedroom carpet. At 25 past five, this is when Joe is officially reported missing and this is when the operation to search is launched, basically. At about half past six, 20 to seven, Michael's mum returns home from work and she sees dark patches on the carpet and asks him what they are. He says a red bio had leaked, so Michael has said he was doing homework, etc. and it had leaked. 
On Thursday, March the 2nd, the search for Joe starts at 7am. Now, at first, I was like, they should have been out all night, etc. But I can imagine it got pretty dark, so that's probably roughly sunrise in March. So that's why they probably headed out at that time. And his body is discovered just before 11am. Now, at school, Michael has gone to school. So Michael has gone to school this day just to confirm he has killed somebody the night before. And Michael has gone to school. Um, at 11am he is removed from his religious education class and is questioned by the deputy head teacher now this all stems from obviously they check in with the school the report that joe's body's been found they've obviously known he's um, been missing etc but this is when the history teacher was like wait a minute joe got a really strange note yesterday from michael so this is what gets looked into his responses are a bit strange so the police are kind of called in to speak to him and by 5 to 12 that day, he is arrested on suspicion of murder. He shows absolutely no emotion. At half past 10, Michael's solicitor says the teenager wants to speak to the police and then he fully confesses to the killing. So this all happens pretty quickly and I think it's probably because of the whole note situation that he knew like that wasn't going to happen. He firstly told Joe, however, though, that he basically bumped into Joe on the way home and Joe had asked to borrow his phone charger because he was like, oh, my phone's going to die before I get home so can I come to your house to borrow your phone charger but obviously that's very easy to argue if he was just going home why would you go via someone else's house to charge your phone why why would you not just go to your house to charge your phone if it was the end of the day and you could go home so why did he pick Joe that is obviously the main question that comes up in this trial why did he pick Joe it was so random like was he jealous of how outgoing and clever Joe was was it an attack due to the cystic fibrosis it's yeah I'm not really understanding it and that I think as well is what was so difficult for Joe's family they couldn't get their head around what had happened to their son as it was but the fact that this was such a random attack and it just happened to be Joe I think is something they'll probably never be able to get over if I'm honest with you Michael's defence did say that I've been asked specifically by him and his mother to express their sorrow and deep regret for what happened in this case which it is great to apologise, but it's, it's not enough. Now, while awaiting trial, Michael was assessed by psychiatrists who said he had an adjustment disorder, but that was it. He didn't have any other diagnosis. In a session, he said he didn't write the letters till the day before, but then said he wrote a note about sex with Joe a month prior, so it was sexually explicit. Michael's defence also put a lot on the bullying and lack of relationship with his dad. So they discussed the fact that he was bullied a lot at school and the fact he had kind of no male influence has obviously then impacted how he is. I mean, it, I think not having a dad doesn't mean you can then go on to murder somebody, but that's just my opinion. Now, towards the end, the court is told when Michael and Joe kind of got alone together that he tried to make sexual advances on Joe. So Michael had made a sexual advance on Joe and I'm assuming it was probably to try and kiss him or do something to which Joe refused. Joe then called Michael gay and said he would tell people what happened. Now, Michael kind of admits that this is true and it, do you know that I can imagine at that time that must have been a really scary thing. So I don't know if Michael maybe thought Joe was gay or maybe had thought that if there was an age gap this is somebody he could maybe take advantage to and I can imagine in 2006 being 14 years old and having a tough time as it was like dealing with his sexual identity must have been such a difficult scary time however that is not me justifying at all what he did. Michael was of course found guilty 
and he had also confessed, so was sentenced to a life with a minimum of 12 years before he'd be eligible for parole. Now, I don't think Joe's family were happy at all with a minimum of 12 years. I think that's really not enough. That meant that he could have applied for parole in 2018, which was years ago already now. So the defence argue this, and this is actually appealed for it to be more, and it goes up to 15 years, which I think his family are happy with, even though it's an extra three years. It's not loads, but... 15 years is still quite a whack of time. That means that he would be, what, 29 by the time he gets out? Now, Michael's mum, of course, sells up and moves away. She was absolutely devastated. And I think, do you know, it must be such a horrible position when you hear of these cases. I've spoke a lot about Joe's family and Joe's family's grief and how they felt. And I, I generally can't imagine how they have felt. However, I cannot imagine what Michael's mum's gone through as well to think that your son has murdered somebody in your own home to this level must be so horrific because you're grieving in a completely different way so I generally can't imagine how she was feeling. In 2016 age 23 Michael applied for a like earlier chance of release but this was dismissed by dismissed sorry by a high court judge. Mrs Justice May had basically said that Michael had made encouraging progress behind bars but not enough justify to justify cutting the time he must serve in jail which I think is actually Really fair enough, it's you know it's good to see that he's making progress, but I really like the fact the judge recognised this wasn't enough to be released out into the world. Now, according to a recent assessment as well, he was still a high risk to children and the public, and that was said by a judge in London. Now, Michael is described as a very compliant inmate and does not have any kind of wrongdoing in the prison. He is also now openly gay, I just wanted to add in. Now, he could have applied for parole in, two, in 2021, but I saw nothing about it. So I actually do not know the current situation of Michael and what Michael Hammer is doing currently. Um, I have looked and looked and looked, so if anyone can find what he's doing, I would really appreciate knowing. I think this case is really just horrible. I think it is really, really just a sad case. And I think the fact it was such a random act of power and there was really no justification for it, the fact that Joe's family have never really had an answer is devastating so I just kind of want to finish up with a statement that Joe's dad had said in 2006 so it describes Joe and it says Joe was an 11 year old going on 50 as a toddler he was very tactile and always seeking attention if your eyes strayed away from him he would go grab your face and make you look at him he was a chatterbox he would never stop talking and was always asking questions if he wasn't happy with a short answer he would keep plugging away until he got a full explanation Joe loved school football and biking he could talk to anyone and made a lasting impression wherever he went. Everyone remembers his infectious smile. He also had a wicked sense of humour. I think he sounds like a great kid and I think he would have been a fantastic adult and I think it's so unfortunate his life was cut short. So thank you very much for listening to me. Um, I have nowhere to debrief. I think if you have any information on where Michael is, I genuinely would be interested to know and find out what he's doing. And yes, I will speak to you all next week when Sam.